She's Tori. And he's Nick. And this is TNN, a Trust No One News special report. The Dr. Kennedy and Chris Cult plus Psychic Karen. So, while looking into Dr. Kennedy in our Learning ESP episode, I was having trouble finding things. But I did find one thing, and that led us to something else. The thing I did find was a blog entitled Adventures Promoting a Parapsychologist, written by Jan Portugal. And in it, she mentions going to a spoon-bending and the power of psychic energy seminar in South Lake Tahoe in 1977. Whoa. The Wagon Wheel Hotel. Mm-hmm. I remember the Wagon Wheel Hotel. It's not there anymore. Oh, okay. Yeah. And in that, she linked to an article about Dr. Kennedy and his son, Chris. So in the Santa Ana Register on Sunday, June 4th, 1977, the headline reads, County Boys Explore Eerie Psychic World by Bob Kirkpatrick, a register staff writer. Two Orange County youngsters have joined the spoon-bending set, duplicating the psychic kinetic power of Israeli psychic Yuri Geller. First to enter the Geller effect arena was a 10-year-old boy in La Palma, David Shepard. Young David began warping silverware early last summer. Witnesses to his unusual psychic power include Dr. William Sungrown, a psychologist and junior high school counselor in Anaheim. Apollo 14 astronaut Dr. Edgar B. Mitchell, founder and president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences in Palo Alto. Paul Bannister, a reporter for the Weekly National Enquirer. John Yench, Anaheim Bulletin staff writer. And Stuart Robb, Anaheim, a longtime parapsychology researcher, lecturer, and author who on several occasions has had David demonstrate his psychic kinetic power before adult and extension classes in parapsychology. Wow. Yeah. Like Colin Cummings of Long Beach, David is a completely normal youngster in all respects, with interests and activities one would expect of a 10-year-old. Except for his difficult-to-explain ability to contort metal objects at will by what Mitchell describes as non-physical means. Unlike many adults who have achieved the Geller effect, David had never observed, in fact, had never heard of, psychic Geller before discovering the power of psychokinesis. As the blue-eyed metal mangler recalls, it was sometime around April that, quote, our family went to a hobby show in Long Beach. I glanced at a booth where a lady was holding a spoon. I found my parents and told them about the lady and the spoon. We went there and saw her stroking spoons gently until they bent by themselves. The lady asked them to try it. They tried it, but the spoons would not bend. And when I tried it, I could not make them bend either. A few days later, I tried to do it again. This time, the spoon bent a bit. My father saw it and has got me to do it several times since. Unquote. Whoa, so he learned psychic powers. Yeah, which is what we're trying to do. We were trying to learn ESP. Yeah. Asked to describe how he achieves the phenomenon, David explained simply, quote, I just think about the spoon bending and wish that it would. I sort of feel energy going into the spoon, sort of wish that it would go there. And it does, end quote. And like Colleen, 
David doesn't object to a gallery of observers. In fact, he claims he performs better when people are around. It's as if I can draw upon them for energy, the youngster observes. David's parents, Harry and Sharon Shepard, who admit to a long-standing interest in psychic phenomena, have been careful not to try to influence him in any way in the exercise of his strange power. As Harry Shepard explains it, quote, we don't want to push the boy in any way. At the same time, we don't want to say, no, you cannot do that. We just want to let him develop on his own and regard this simply as another activity of his. Although willing to have David engage in scientific research in the study of his power, the shepherds don't wish to discuss details for any planned studies. Undue publicity, they fear, might jeopardize the research. An added facet to young David's power is the apparent ability to achieve healing, according to his father, who reports the boy periodically attends a healing clinic in Santa Monica to affect relief of minor ailments such as backaches. And parapsychology lecturer Rob vouches for having witnessed David achieve a minor healing in one of his classes. The most recent case, and by far the most spectacular and provocative, of youth going on a mind-mashing paranormal bender involves a Laguna Beach boy, formerly of Anaheim. Chris Kennedy, a slender, blonde 12-year-old, has all the appearance of the average kid next door. This soft-spoken, blue-eyed youngster likes to play football, enjoys surfing, and is interested in motorcycling and a host of other activities which one considers normal for a boy his age. But today, he's bending knives, forks, spoons, keys, coins, even heavy andirons with ease. And just a little note, an andiron is the grate in your fireplace that you put logs on. So they're those like heavy iron mm-hmm. grated things that you would put a log on to burn. So probably oh, doesn't Impressive. Bend. Yeah. Chris developed this strange power through the guidance of his father, Lawrence Kennedy of South Laguna. Determined to master the same psychic powers demonstrated by Geller, Kennedy for months concentrated on spoon bending, trying to produce the well-known Geller effect. Despite exhausting efforts of concentration and willing the phenomenon to occur, nothing happened. Kennedy was frustrated and discouraged. He had hoped to emulate Geller's feats in order to present an academic treatise on this phenomenon. As the deadline for his paper drew near, panic welled up in him. The breakthrough came in early July, quietly, effortlessly. No sparks, no thunder, no lightning. It just happened. Kennedy was listening to a Franz Liszt concerto, totally relaxed and absorbing the beauty of the music. But all the while gently stroking the spoon, he invariably carried with him. And the spoon became limp, began to bend. As Kennedy explains it, quote, I simply forgot my ego, my conscious striving, and my willing to achieve this, and let a higher power take over. Son Chris was stunned. Oh, okay. So this was not the son doing this. This was the father. No, this was the father, yeah. Okay. I was wondering about the son writing a treatise. Like, okay, whatever. You're 12 (laughs) years old. What are you doing? Okay. All right. (laughs) He's very precocious. (laughs) Gee, Dad, do you think I could do that? Of course you can, son. And soon afterwards... Chris bent his first spoon, but neither he nor his father were prepared for the psychic explosion, which occurred later. 
One morning in August, Kennedy was on the phone conducting details of his psychic book distribution business while Chris was in the kitchen trying unsuccessfully to bend a fork. When his father got off the phone, Chris confessed dejectedly, Dad, I can't do my stuff on this fork. Maybe what you need is a spoon instead of a fork, Kennedy suggested, pulling open the cutlery drawer. He was shocked, he told me later, to find the drawer a mangled metal mess. Forks, knives, spoons, can openers, basting whisk, and a tea kettle top were all contorted. A potato peeler was broken off at the handle. Kennedy fished for a spoon in the dishwasher. More mangled silverware. He went to the sink. No usable cutlery there either. Bemused, Kennedy scratched his head. What the heck are we going to use for dinner, he wondered aloud. <laughs> I mean, fair. Fair question. Yeah. Entering the living room, he discovered more metal mayhem. The corner of the birdcage was bent out of line. The metal rabbit antenna on the TV were bent. The TV stand magazine rack was contorted with one metal strand broken. Metal camping cookware laid out for forthcoming vacation trip looked like rejects from a junk swap meet. Kennedy contacted members of the news media in Orange County to apprise them of the incident. The National Enquirer got wind of the phenomenon and wanted details. But even before the Kennedy's mass metal bending experience had become publicly known, their psychokinetic powers had come to the attention of parapsychology researcher Stuart Robb, also of Anaheim. And we also have a picture of Lawrence Kennedy, son Chris, check twisted metal objects. And there's a table and there's just like all kinds of stuff, like all twisted. And it says Kennedy's now are engaged in experiments with psychic healing. Ooh. <laughs> Yeah, they have a lot of bent metal stuff on that table. Yeah, he's got like a big old like fireplace poker that's all bent and there's just all kinds of stuff. Yeah, man, messed up. I wonder what his wife thought about that. Yeah, I. Mm, mm. Yeah, probably sent him to the store to get more silverware. <laughs> the natives are using plastic silverware, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Rob lost no time in delving further into the Kennedy's apparent psychic power. While interviewing the two at lunch in a Fullerton restaurant, Rob began his inquiry by having Chris try his hand at psychometry, the process of holding an article in the hand and tuning in on the specific details of the article's owner or the article itself. Chris performed well. Rob then handed him a Chinese fortune cookie and asked him to read the hidden contents. Chris cupped the cookie in his hand, closed his eyes, and concentrated. Minutes later, he hesitantly quoted the message received in his mind. The night, life is fortune. That's a lame fortune. Anyway, Rob opened the cookie and read the printed fortune on the tiny slip of paper. The night, life is for you, it read. Excited, Rob picked Whoa. another fortune cookie and handed it to Chris. Now read this one. So he's having him do like partner tricks. Now he's like, a, yeah, hey, do this. Yeah. Chris appeared puzzled, disappointed. Rob said because he kept getting the same message. Chris commented that the first message must be lingering, that he could not get it out of his mind. All he could receive was the same reading. The night life is for you. Rob opened the second cookie. The fortune reading was identical to the first. Whoa. Yeah. On a later occasion at Rob's home, the fortune cookie experiment was repeated. This time, according to Rob, Chris scored with 100% accuracy. Whoa. Yeah. 
Chris has all the powers. He's going to be on the episode of the X-Files. Yep. That, that's where Chris Carter got it. <laughs> Stuff like this. He's like, yep, well, if you have one, you have the rest. So that's how it works. Maybe young Chris Kennedy changed his name to Chris Carter. <gasps> I don't know. And then we've also got a picture of young David, who we started the story off with. David shows mangled spoons to the family. Sister April, the shepherds encourage the boy. And David is like holding a spoon and his mom and dad are there. And his sister's like, oh, look, spoons. So yeah. very exciting stuff. Mm-hmm. Impressed with Chris's abilities, Rob stated, quote, Chris unquestionably has genuine psychic powers and they're growing more powerful every day. There is simply no way he could have known the contents of the fortune cookies. I saw to that myself, unquote. Ooh. To verify Chris's apparent powers, I interviewed him and his father at their modest apartment. Rob and his family were also present. I examined the twisted kitchenware, the misshapen birdcage, the bent rabbit ear antenna, the camping cookware ludicrously malformed. At Rob's suggestion, Chris proceeded to demonstrate his ability to bend kitchenware. A good-looking youngster, Chris seemed natural as rain. Dressed in blue jeans, a t-shirt, and with a string of wooden beads around his neck, he appeared relaxed and happy to perform for us. We watched as he gently stroked a spoon. Within minutes, it had angled to 90 degrees. Minutes later, it had almost doubled back. With a trace of a smile, Chris set it on the floor to join an array of misshapen silverware displayed for our benefit. Today, he has a suitcase full of contorted knives, spoons, and forks, which he has accumulated through repeated demonstrations. And his father continues to foot an ever-mounting bill for replacement silverware. I mean, bend it back so you can use it. Yeah, I mean, that seems like the best solution. (laughs) Rob suggested another experiment. Producing a wristwatch, which no longer worked, he asked Chris to see if he could make the hands move. We hovered over Chris watching him closely. The boy held the watch on both sides, not saying a word, just concentrating. His fingers remained immobile. We were positive that he made no effort to rotate the stem. Within the first two minutes, there was barely perceptible movement. The minute hand crept ahead five minutes. Suddenly, the minute hand began traveling Within a matter of seconds, the minute hand had made a complete revolution of the face of the watch with no movement of Chris's fingers. Later, during the same interview, Chris picked up a potato peeler already bent to a 45-degree angle. He stroked it for a few moments, then held it in one hand, watching it fixedly. Moments later, it snapped in two. Chris, again with just a trace of a smile, handed the pieces to me for examination. Still another facet of Chris's complex powers has been reported by Rob. On two occasions, Rob engaged Chris in experimentation with what Rob labels independent writing. Rob placed a blank piece of paper on the coffee table at his home. Over it, face down, he placed a sheet of carbon paper. Above this, he placed a page of newspaper. Rob instructed Chris, now think of something pertaining to the world of music. The boy held his hand above the paper for a few moments, concentrating on Rob's suggestion. Then they turned their attention to other experiments, letting the independent writing experiment cook as Rob recounted. 45 minutes later, Rob continued, I removed the carbon paper and clearly imprinted in block letters on the original blank paper were the words, Patty Page. 
Mm. Who I, I guess is a musician person. Yeah, she's a country singer. Oh, gotcha. Okay. See, I don't know. Yet another experiment conducted at Rob's home, and for which he vouches unreservedly, involved a mechanical poker hand dealing device. Push the button and the five wheels spin. One at a time, the drums abruptly halt, revealing the image of a playing card. Oh, so it's a slot machine, basically. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, okay. Weird description. Okay, yeah. Three times, according to Rob, young Chris correctly predicted the suit of all five playing cards displayed by the device. What distinguishes Chris from the other two youngsters described earlier is the tremendous, ever-widening scope of his psychic abilities. See? All the powers. There you go. Uh-huh. In addition to psychokinesis, psychometrics, and independent writing, Kennedy and Rob report successful experiments with Chris in archaeological psychometry, Whoa. precognition, telepathy, automatic writing, which I guess is different than independent writing, mm-hmm. clear audio, which I guess is some kind of psychic hearing, astro travel, Astral projection, which I would think are the same thing, but I don't know. Transfer <laughs> of psychokinetic power and most recently, psychic healing. Whoa. I mean, got it all. Shit. Yeah. Possibly the most significant develop in Chris's career are his reported psychic healings. A number of parapsychology researchers have observed these healings, which we got to say are like constantly in quotes, including Rob and Kenneth McKenzie, a director of research at the Cynetics Research and Education Foundation, Anaheim. Affected through meditation with no physical contact, Chris's father claims that more than 50 persons have experienced immediate relief. In some instances, perhaps a cure, in quotes, from a variety of physical ailments such as hearing loss, impaired eyesight, rheumatism, and crippling arthritis. While McKenzie points out that no conclusions can be drawn without follow-up studies and documentation by medical authorities, he readily vouches for observing the reaction of subjects who have declared immediate improvement in their condition. The most dramatic instance of healing claimed by Kennedy occurred in mid-November at the Church of Revelation Anaheim where he and Chris gave a demonstration of psychic healing. It involved a 26-year-old man, Kennedy reports, confined to a wheelchair who stated, I haven't walked in five years. I'll never walk normally again. After applying their meditation techniques, Kennedy states that the man got up from his wheelchair, walked across the stage, and back to his wheelchair. The occurrence was witnessed by and is vouched for by the church's Reverend Richard Vallandingham. Parapsychologists come up with a variety of definitions for this psychic power, as well as explanations or theories regarding its source, often with religious overtones. Yet the consensus is firm. The power is undeniably real. In fact, this power has been captured on film in Curlian photography experiments at UCLA's Neuropsychiatric Institute. Curlian photography developed in Russia is the sending of an electrical charge to an object placed on film. The result is a picture showing the surface characteristics of the object, along with the image of the emanation of energy fields contained in the object. Psychic physicists call it the cold emissions coming from the object. Other researchers label it as the corona discharge, life force, or aura. The Russians called the image of this force the bioplasma body. 
And of course, we talked about this a little bit in the very first episode of In Search Of. Mm-hmm. So, and we will talk uh, about it more in the X-Files episode, Leonard Betts. Ooh, all yeah, right. Comes up there. So call it what you will, but UCLA experimenters photographed a dramatic surge of this power spurting from psychic Yuri Geller's fingertip. I have watched Chris perform on several occasions and unquestionably the quote spookiest experience I've had with him involved a serious prediction or warning late in the afternoon of August 27th. Kennedy called me from Anderson, California, where he and Chris were vacationing with relatives. The urgency in Kennedy's voice was unmistakable. He told me that Chris had entered a trance like state on two occasions, both times quote, communicating repeatedly with images of John F. Kennedy and Robert F. Kennedy, at which time Chris received urgent warnings of an impending attempt against the life of President Ford. Kennedy asked me if I would notify the news wire services. Instinctively, I shrank from the idea. No news bureau, I felt certain, would touch the incident with a 20-foot pole. But Kennedy persisted. Before he hung up, he urged me, do something, please. I just don't want this hanging over my conscience. Half an hour later, I relayed Kennedy's account to the night shift chief of Associated Press's Los Angeles Bureau. His reaction did not surprise me. Skepticism, fear of a hoax, suspicion of a publicity stunt, strictly flaky as newsmen label it. However, after vouching for Chris's observed abilities, I secured the shift chief's promise to contact the San Francisco Bureau and suggest someone contact Kennedy by phone. No call was ever made. On Friday, August 29th, we had just locked up the front page at the register. It was 11 a.m. No late-breaking news stories compelling us to bust into page one until five minutes later when the slot man rushed from the teletype room waving an urgent AP dispatch. Dateline Washington, the story began, quote, The Secret Service is investigating threats to kill President Ford and Vice President Rockefeller in Dallas, Texas, and New York City, a spokesman said today. We're aware of threats in New York and a threat in Dallas, and we're investigating, said the spokesman, Ken Lynch. He declined to give further details, end quote. Whoa. I contacted Rob, relaying the details of Chris's earlier warning, and then the contents of the AP dispatch quoted above. Rob was skeptical. Really? I know. I'm surprised. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like Rob has been like promoting this kid. Now he's like, eh, I don't know. Quote, Chris has undeniable psychic powers, he commented. But I seriously doubt he's able to communicate with spirits on a higher plane, so to speak. End quote. And with that, Rob dismissed the episode, suggesting it might have been auto-suggestion in Chris's subconscious mind playing tricks. But seven days later, Associated Press flashed word of an attempt against Ford's life near the state capitol in Sacramento. Secret servicemen had wrestled Lynette Squeaky Frome, a Manson family member, to the ground after she had brandished a loaded automatic and aimed it at arm's length range at President Ford. 17 days later, on September 22nd, Sarah Jane Moore, 45, linked to a number of Bay Area radical groups, was seized in San Francisco after she fired a 38 caliber revolver at Ford. Even today, a disturbing unease gnaws at me. Fortuitous, a lucky shot in the dark? Or does young Chris stand at the threshold of a new dimension, 
a newly discovered source of power which begs for scientific inquiry. Oh. And then we've also got a photo of the Curlian photo capture psychic energy burst is from fingertip of psychic Geller. Whoa. So, yeah. This story seemed more about Chris Kennedy than it seemed about the local kids that they were started out the story about, I have to say. Yeah. So we should also note that I believe this is the editorial page because right under the headline, it says the register focus editorial business. So I'm not sure where this would fit in the newspaper section. Probably a feature. It seems like it's a feature. Okay. So, you know, where it's, it's got some editorializing, but it's mostly just, you know, this feature story about these psychic powers and stuff. So it's Mm. definitely not news. But you know, yeah, we got some deep cuts in this. We got the curly and photography. We got Mitchell in here too. We got, got lots squeaky from and article. Sarah Jane Moore. You know, yeah, Ooh, crazy we stuff. Got a lot of stuff in this one, and we're not even done with this special report. <laughs> now we'll speak about Karen Getzla, who we met at the end of the learning ESP episode. And this is from the Ancient Stone Speak, A Journey to the World's Most Mysterious Megalithic Sites, which is a book by David Zink, who we also saw in that episode and who we had seen previously in our Atlantis episode of In Search Of. So again, these people seem to kind of all link together somehow. (laughs) So this is a... Not necessarily an insert, but it's like a little section between some chapters in the book. And it's entitled Psychic Impressions at Tiawanako. At Tiawanako, many visitors gather the impression that it is the most mysterious and inexplicable archaeological site of the New World. It should not, therefore, be surprising that psychic impressions of its past contain some bizarre elements. Karen Getzla, who has assisted me with the Bamini Project, flew to Bolivia with me to give on-site impressions at Tiawanako. Her experience there was so emotionally powerful that it led me to question the advisability of taking sensitives into the field. At the entrance to the site, the semi-subterranean temple was ahead of us to the south. On its walls are tenoned limestone heads, which reflect great racial variety, not all humanoid. To our right, looking west, was the great Kala Sasaya, a rectangular enclosure about 443 by 227 feet surrounded by red sandstone monoliths set into masonry. The monolithic stairway of Kala Sasaya faced us. Behind the semi-subterranean temple lay, further to the south, the Akapanya, a great earthen mound about 650 feet on a side and about 50 feet in height. Within it was a central depression and a stone drainage structure had been found leading from this depression. When I asked Karen about the original culture of Tiawanako, she saw a very, very small people, with the group numbering no more than 100 to 150 people. Quote, you are talking about one of the most holistic cultures I have ever tuned into, one in which there were no important numbers because they were all important. There is such oneness of mind that there is no discussion. End quote. Karen saw the Kalasasaya as the location of the original group's court of standards. The first culture at the site was, she said, 
in understanding, a very high one, yet one which lived very simply and did not require cities or towns. Karen gave no information about their origins. She saw basically three cultures, the founding group, a transition culture, and then later the Inca. Further broken down, she saw a total of five distinct cultures before the Spanish arrival. This is consistent with the modern Bolivian archaeology at the time unknown to her. Whoa. So she's never read anything about this and couldn't have gotten the information anywhere else. No. Okay. Definitely not from this guy who knows all about this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. She works with a lot. Within the Kala Society itself, in what Benedict called the inner court, she saw 13 alcoves representing the various regions, a total of 26 presumably occupied by judges representing the regions. Of these alcoves, no evidence remains. She said that the Gate of the Sun had been brought to the Kala Society from elsewhere. This was later confirmed. She also said that none of the monoliths belonged within either. She had the impression that the Spanish found the Kala Society the best place to bury these pagan artifacts to get them out of the way. If this is correct, inferences from the 20th century locations of monoliths within the Kala Society would be invalid. The Akapana, usually believed to be a ruined pyramid, was, she said, a water supply, not a pyramid, used for its medicinal properties and purification. She noted that the original culture needed only water, not food, and she observed no sign of cultivation. This is just what another psychic, Carol Huffstickler, told me about the culture coming into Bimini 30,000 years ago. West of the yeah, west of the main site and south of the present village of Tiawanako lies Puma Punku, its assortment of huge monolithic shapes weighing up to 200 tons, a puzzle to all. Karen linked Puma Punku to the transitional culture. She said that an interest in numbers began with this transitional culture and, quote, you will find an interesting astronomical correlation between Tiawanako and Puma Punku. It will require, she said, the excavation of the hilltop, the mound at Puma Punku, which faces away from Tiawanako. The red sandstone of Puma Punku belonged to the first transitional group, and the andesite belonged to the later transitional group. Uh-oh. When I first read W.C. Bennett's monograph on his 1931 excavation at Tiwanaco, my attention had been drawn to two monoliths he found within the semi-subterranean temple. In particular, the bearded statue suggested to me the influence of another culture. I asked Karen about these two figures. She had the impression that the two red sandstone monoliths had been added at a later time when the culture realized, quote, that its emphasis had shifted from spiritual to non-spiritual. Ooh. Ooh. Remember, she figured they had like mental war and like wiped each other out. So, yeah, not sounding good. The two monoliths, the bearded one and the militaristic figure, side by side then, the bearded one and the largest one at the site now, now in La Paz, represented a prophecy of the ultimate downfall of the civilization. The bearded figure is about 8.3 feet tall and weighs about three quarters of a ton. The militaristic figure is 24 feet tall and weighs about 20 tons. 
Karen said that the two red sandstone monoliths in the semi-subterranean temple were done by the transition group, the second group, before the arrival of the Inca. In her words, quote, the bearded one was a person of high spirituality, going beyond anything that I have experienced culturally, be it Indian or Oriental. A breakdown in language when I tried to indicate how powerful the spirituality was and how the ideal was a lived thing, not something that they had to write down in books. It was so well lived that there was no need for documentation or schooling in it. It was tremendously consistent from individual to individual, not requiring record keeping as to what the rules of the game were about. End quote. Oh, man. <laughs> Heavy stuff. Yep. Karen saw the juxtaposition of the two statues as a, quote, warning of the deterioration that was coming, warning that it was already within the culture. End quote. The two monoliths found by Bennett then, according to Karen, represented a change from spiritual values and simplicity to militaristic power and complexity. From a homogeneous group structure to a structured hierarchical society based on power. Her interpretation of the militaristic monolith figure focused on the Kiro beaker held in one hand and the bird of prey in the other. For her, these two elements highlighted the radical change of consciousness. A cup of water, nourishment, freely offered, contrasted with combat, the bird of prey. Before my actual visit to Tiawanako, I had asked another psychic who had been most helpful at Bimini, Anne, to give me her impressions of the site. In view of the fact that during the last century, many have speculated that the human race began at Tiawanako, I was, in a sense, prepared. However, Anne's readings evoked in me the same response I'd first had at Bimini with a similar version of prehistory, science fiction. Upon reflection, however, her version was not inconsistent with many presently emerging clues to prehistory. Here are some excerpts from a series of impressions done over seven months prior to my visit. Ooh. Here we go. Quote, Lake Titicaca represents an advance of beings from other stars whose similarity to man stems from being predecessors. End quote. Quote, the splendor of Tewanako lie in the fact that its achievements ran contrary to what was expected. At first, a superior race were guardians of secrets of accomplishment brought here from Mars. Reservoirs to sustain life form were necessary to the experiments. These stellar beings composed from Earth the materials necessary to sustain life. Their achievement lies in the fact that, until this time, no minerals were known. Here, minerals were mined and collected, and the properties assigned to each. End quote. Quote, the Titicaca experiment left much to be accomplished. The temple was destroyed by windstorms of the solar eclipse, beings disseminated through the Earth from this point. Unquote. And also had the impression of a major geological change at 25,000 BC, the uplift speculated upon by many observers. Ooh. Her reading suggested a stunningly long sweep of prehistory. Quote, the early progenitor spent four billion years ready in the planet. At Tiwanaku, they spent 200,000 years. They left and returned in different groups checking on the experiment. When they came in, 
They were thought of as gods. Migrating tribes occupied such sites at a much later date. Little understanding of significance using them as shelters, feeling something of the holiness of the grounds. End quote. If this were true, it would explain my own feeling that the megalithic structures and the implied engineering skills somehow were not compatible with the pottery and other Tiwanaku artifacts. Question. What is the function of the faces on the sunken wall, the semi-subterranean temple at Tiwanaku? Answer. These were carved into stone at a time prior to man's history. Their significance exemplifies the root races that will be forthcoming upon the earth. All was known and planned in advance of man's gradual involvement. Those who carved them were a superior race who undertook to achieve preliminary investigations on behalf of man. Knowing what would be needed within the Earth's framework would ensure the success of the human organism. End quote. It was this final impression of Anne's which led to speculation on a similarity between the bearded statue and the Hindu thought Quote, at Tiwanaku, the pottery compromises a mixture of cultures. First, on one hand, you will see the remains of a giant civilization. On the other hand, you will see the remnants of a later people scattered throughout the land by invaders. The bearded statue belongs to the first group. The bearded statue represented a man chosen to descend to teach. He was fair. His robe and sandals were similar to those worn by Jesus. <laughs> they're making a lot of leaps here. He spoke plainly and reminded man of the reason for the descent and the goals of evolution. These goals were to raise the animal appearance to higher levels. Jackals at his feet and head show serpent energy could achieve the reversals of the animal energy. The animals are usually interpreted as pumas, but they actually look like jackals. Oh, of course. I mean, yeah. The pottery represents one foot on the earth, the other in the heavens. Longing to return was intense and evidence of the period. Ooh. Okay, then. The illusion to serpent energy reminded me of the Hindu Kundalini Yoga. Its concept of body energies and the evolution of these energies from body center to body center the so-called chakras. For the mainstream of Western science, these are metaphors. In a university-based Karelian project of my own, I found that practice meditators could influence Karelian photos of their fingertips by concentrating on various chakras. Whatever the reality of the chakras, Eastern tradition includes body and hand positions to facilitate alteration of the individual's energy patterns. Like Dragon Ball Z. Anyway. <laughs> in the characteristic pose, the left hand covers the solar plexus area, the right hand, the heart area. This is exactly the pose of the bearded monolith. Was there a worldwide tradition upon which the Hindus and those at Tiwanaku drew? It is interesting to us that in Mexico, at the Tiwanakan temple of Quetzalcoatl, Another investigator has recently speculated on possible evidence of Hindu influence. During one of my visits to Iwanaku, I walked with the caretaker, Jose Zunaga, who gave me a clue that seems to bear on the question. Were the Aymara Indians the builders of the megalithic site? In Aymara, I was told Kalasasea means 
standing stones. Acapanya means hill. This suggests to me that the Imera first saw the site essentially in the ruined condition of 1957. The date was Sanguines began his excavation and restorations. At that time, the Colossaceae resembled a rectangular pattern of standing stones. The intervening masonry now reconstructed, having been torn down through the centuries. Both Zunaga and Ponce Sanguines gave me clues to the astronomical possibilities of the site. For one thing, reminiscent of ancient Egyptian geography, the towns of Pajir, Tiawanako, and Wankani all lie on a meridian. There appears also to be an equinoctial sunrise alignment through the monolithic gateway of the Colossusia over the semi-subterranean temple and far to the east over the snow-capped Illimani, a hundred kilometers distant. And that is pretty much all that I could find about Karen Getzler. It's way more than we got in the In Search of Episodes. <laughs> yeah, it matches though, because like the whole like it's on a meridian and the whole like psychic warfare stuff and, uh-huh so. and her ideas are very odd so maybe they just didn't want to go into them they didn't want to be like oh yeah this woman thinks aliens came and drew this stuff and then people like killed each other in psychic fights and also they didn't eat food because they didn't need it and yeah. yeah anyway she also wasn't impressed by their stupid pottery so yeah <sighs> pottery and now you know but should you believe <laughs> This wraps up another Trust No One News special report. Back to you in the studio. (laughs) This has been a TNN Trust No One News special report. TNN, the truth is in here. News you'll want to believe. But probably shouldn't. How did we end this? I forgot. What did I, how did we sum up? What did we say? We say... This has oh, been a think... Trust TNN, Trust No One News special report. Yes. Do you want to do the ending so again? So, so I'll, well, I'll say, I'll just say, and now you know, but should you believe? And then we'll say, this has been a Trust No One special report. There we go. Yeah. Cool. We're done. All right. Yay. Whew, that was more than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> just a lot of little text. A lot of little text. <laughs> And hard to read words that we don't know. Yeah, man, I apologize. I was like, here, read that last paragraph. That is like 80 different words in there that we don't know how to say. <laughs> like, uh, I'll figure it out. It's okay. Probably butchered All some right. things. Hopefully no one gets too mad. Okay. Probably pronounce right, Wankani we... like you would in Hawaii, but that's okay. Maybe. That's like um, Wakanda, basically. So. I speak more Hawaiian yeah. than I do Spanish, so... I mean, they were basically talking about Wakanda, essentially. So. Yeah, I mean, it's true. True. <laughs> all right. All right. And now we have our Trust No One News set up. So we're all set for any time special reports. Yay, special Ooh. reports. We could also do Trust No One News corrections. Yes. Yeah. There's probably be a lot of those. Good Lord. Yeah. <laughs>